in here this morning and my, uh, my microphone that follows me uh, was dead. And so I'm here. I'm going to be located and fixed in position unless I decide to take the microphone and walk around like a, oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'll have an 800 number and everything. Uh, we've been uh, in a series about the, the role of God. And the roles that God plays in our relationship with him. The various ways that we interact with God as our creator, as our protector and provider, as our father. And today we're going to conclude this series by looking at what is at the heart of our relationship with God. And what most clearly and outwardly defines that relationship with God. Because all of the other attributes of God serve to express a particular part of who God is for us. All of the rest of it is in service to one thing and one thing alone. God as our saving grace. And God truly is that power that is at the heart of how we are saved and why we are saved. As we read through scripture and we see God's relationship with man demonstrated and in fact explained it is very clear that we are his creation. And not only are we his creation put on this earth, but we are his creation designed with the very intention in mind to save us. From the very beginning, it was in his design that we would be saved. It was in his intention with his creation that we would be rescued from what this world would throw at us. That we would be brought back to be with him. We see this in, uh, in, in all of the accounts, in so many stories that, that involve God's interaction with his people, we see it with Noah. We see him giving instruction to Noah to build an ark on which living things would be gathered and they would be spared. There was grace involved. To a point, in such a close parallel and such an instructive thing, that when Peter writes about that very event, he ties it to the Christian age and to our salvation that's received by faith expressed in baptism. He makes a connection between that which divides the sinner from the saved, a faith in Jesus Christ, a baptism, a burial in the blood, and raised to walk in newness of life. He makes the connection that the nature of God is the saving grace that brought Noah through the flood and us through sin. What an important event that was to demonstrate the saving nature of God with his people. We could go on and on about the Israelites. We could talk about their wandering. We can talk about the promised land. We can talk about how many times he spared them. That in and of itself is a grace that we do not know, nor do we possess. We can look at uh, Genesis chapter 22. Abraham called to sacrifice his son Isaac. Has him on the altar. By the way, uh, a lot of scholars in their uh, study of that account, because we sometimes think of you know Isaac as being maybe like I don't know a teenager or something, and who wouldn't want to sacrifice a teenager every now and then? But but he was probably somewhere around thirty. And yet there again, if a thirty-year-old is still you know living in your your tent, I guess maybe it's time to take him up there on that mountaintop. I don't know. But Abraham and Isaac is a story that is so layered with grace and so relevant to us, not only does it occur 
on the very place, in the very place where the temple would one day be constructed. Not only does it occur in this place that has such historical prominence to the Jewish people and to their history, and even to Christians, but it is a story that's layered in with Jesus himself. This is an early glimpse at Jesus, way back in Genesis chapter 22. Because here's Abraham called to make a sacrifice. He had to experience the idea and the, and, and, and the knowledge that he would not come down from that mountain with the son he went up with. And yet, the intention of his heart was to follow through with what God was asking. And God offered an alternative. God stopped that sacrifice because he saw what he needed to see in the faith of Abraham. The faith that was demonstrated in the willingness to follow through. And some people act like, you know, God was testing Abraham. And maybe God was testing Abraham. Maybe that's what he had in mind. I hope to ask him one day to say, why, why did you do that? I think maybe there is an aspect to testing of faith just to see if we'll, you know, to see if we'll, we'll go along. You know, we do that sometimes, right? We, we say something or we construct some kind of uh, a story to see how someone's going to react because we just want to know. You know, it's like, oh, no, I was just kidding. I just wanted to see what you would say. I just wanted to see what you would say. I don't know that God operates that way. I think that this was more of an example that God wanted to make. I read that and I see God laying the foundation for our understanding of who he is. More so than just giving Abraham a test. I have a tough time seeing throughout the, 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 the whole of scripture a God that offers trick questions to his people. But rather one who slowly reveals himself. I believe that Abraham and Isaac demonstrates one of these examples of God revealing himself to be a, one who possesses a saving grace. He asked something of Abraham in order that he could send his angel. The angel of the Lord, very possibly, by some traditional views of this, uh, this particular word, may have even been the son, Jesus himself, that held the hand of Abraham that stopped the slaughter and the sacrifice. God knowing that one day he would be in Abraham's position. Jesus knowing one day he would be in Isaac's position, but the knife would not stop. And instead offering an alternative. You see the layers of this story. On the mountain where the temple would one day stand, a son is called to be sacrificed by the father. The Father and the Son in heaven are witness to this event. To see what happens. To see what faith looks like. And then to stop and say, that's enough. We've seen enough. You've seen enough. I am a God that saves. I am a God that spares life. I am a God who is a saving grace. An alternative sacrifice was provided there. The lesson to us is the alternative sacrifice that God will provide when we find ourselves on that altar. And in the case of Jesus, the one who lays upon the altar. We see all of these attributes of God directing us to one place. If God created us in his image to live a life on this earth to be saved, to protect us and provide for us, to be our father, then we have nowhere else to look as we follow the progression of understanding 
in those relationships, we come to the same conclusion. What is it that God uses to provide? What is it that is the ultimate purpose of our creation? What is it that God uses to protect us? How does he save us? And what is a father except one who has a son? Everything points us to Jesus. Everything points us to Jesus. The story of the book of Job. Uh, we talked about this in our Bible class this morning a little bit. To understand the nature of God as a saving grace, there is part of us that has to understand the nature of Satan and what that is. Satan is a little bit of a nebulous thing in Scripture. We have an image sometimes of this entity that represents evil, that represents destruction, that moves to and from the places of the earth to disrupt and to tempt and to draw people to him and to sin and away from God. Uh, often in scripture we see Satan described, and we have to remember the language there, that the word Satan means accuser, deceiver, adversary. Sometimes in the Old Testament we see Satan rose up against Israel. Well, and you can think of it that way. The forces of evil certainly did. An adversary did. And so sometimes Satan is an idea. Satan is a concept. Sometimes Satan is a very literal thing. Person or, or being that represents all of this evil. The juxtaposition to God and his grace. Satan is not so much interested, I don't think, in the trickery and temptation to make you do something bad so that you go to hell. But what Satan is interested in, almost philosophically, is the question of, is mankind worth it? And I believe that Satan is making the case, and has made the case to God, and makes the case to us, that we are not worth it. I believe he was in the ear of Jesus to make the case that we were not worth it. He worked on Jesus himself to say, you don't have to do this. Look at the temptations of Christ. When Christ goes into the wilderness, he's fasting. Jesus is there, and it says that Satan appeared before him, and he starts tempting him. He starts offering him things, and all of it designed to say, don't go through with this thing that God wants you to do. These people aren't worth it. Look at them. Look at them. The story of Job also carries that same theme. That's the thing about Satan is from the beginning of Scripture to the end, it's very hard to ignore the fact that there are very consistent things about the way Satan is described. And the concept of accuser, deceiver, and adversary speaks very strongly and comes through very clearly. The traditional view of Satan is that he was an angel, that he was dwelling in heaven serving the Lord, saw the love that God had for mankind and grew jealous. Because the son, his death, the salvation that comes through him is not afforded to those angels. They're witnesses to God. Their sin casts them out of the presence of God with no opportunity for redemption. Because they are in his presence. We who do not see him and are not in his presence in heaven have the opportunity to be saved and brought there. But the angels do not. And this, one, this angel that we know as Satan or Lucifer, rebelled against God, led a rebellion of angels against God, were cast out of heaven, and the purpose of that rebellion was to say, these things you've created are not worth it. They're not good enough. 
They never will be. Why do you love them so much? This is the traditional view of Satan. There are a lot of different views of Satan and his nature. Whatever it is, whether you are on the end of the spectrum that sees him as an allegorical concept or whether you are on the end of the spectrum that sees him as a literal lord of darkness leading the forces of evil to destroy mankind, wherever you fall on that, the nature of Satan is pretty consistent. He approaches God in what is considered to be chronologically the oldest story in scripture. And he comes to Job. Or, uh, to, to God to discuss Job. And he says, you know, these people you've made, they're fickle, they're weak, they're really not worth it. Because I would bet that if you take away the nice, shiny things that they love, they will crumble, they will reject you, they will turn on you, and they will turn to me. That's what's implicit in the wager that he has with God. Some historians and scholars think Job is probably just a story or an allegory. Very well could be. The Jewish people wrote a lot of stories and allegories to convey meaning and understanding of concepts that we cannot grasp with human mind. And that's fine either way. Because whether literal or allegorical, the way that the nature of Satan is expressed through scripture is very rich and very consistent. He goes to God to say, no, not them. Not them. They're not worth it. Goes to Jesus to say, no, they're not worth it. Goes to you to say, you're not worth it. Why would God want to do, have anything to do with you? Why would Jesus die for you? That's what Satan whispers in your ear every day. Guilt, shame, all of those things, they have nothing to do with God. They have everything to do with Satan. We think of God as a great judge. And there's a reason that there's not a lesson in this series called God our judge. Because although we will face judgment, the accuser is not our God. The accuser is Satan. That's what his name means. And when we stand before God, whatever that looks like, and we give an account, whatever that looks like. It is going to be the sin that we've committed, the offenses that we have committed against God that will be at issue. And Satan, in some way or another, will be saying through that sin, see, not good enough, not worth it. What does the Bible have to say about that idea? Romans chapter 7 is a beautiful passage. It's quite lengthy. We're going we're gonna to read it. But I want you to listen to the words of Paul in a letter that is so full of grace, so full, it echoes very, very strongly the words of Peter. When Peter writes, uh, saying, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. See, God does not want to condemn. It is not his intention to condemn. Condemnation comes by choosing this world. Condemnation we bring on ourselves. God's judgment is not the way we think of judgment. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Judgment is, are we defended by something? Do we have a defense for the accusations of Satan? Let's read what Paul says there. What shall we say then? This is verse 7. 
is the law sinful? He's talking about the old law and how it set all these guidelines and parameters and we would, we, we would violate them and human nature was so strong against living within this framework. He says, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said you shall not had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me. And though and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. See, Paul's kind of confusing. He sets up one thing and you say, okay, well, that must mean, nope, nope, that's not what it means. That's how Paul works. By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin... It used what is good to bring about my death so that the commandment, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to, uh, to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, Excuse me, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. But it is sin living in me that does it. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body? That is subject to death. That is the question we face. Paul talks about deception. The perversion and the twisting of something intended to bring life. Intended to preserve life. The beauty of the law. The beauty of God's will and design. Perverted and twisted by the deceptive natures of our heart. By the accusation of our mind that we're not good enough that we're guilty, that we're failure. What will free us from that trap? What will free us from this cycle that Paul says the law sticks him in? Of something good that he is supposed to attain, but something within him that says you are not worthy of attaining it because you fail to attain it. And it produces more and more evil. The deception, the accusation, the adversarial relationship he finds himself at with the law is Satan at work in the law and in the heart of man. And Paul poses the question, what do I do about that? How does that get fixed? Verse 25. Some of the most beautiful words in the entire book. Thanks be to God 
who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. They all point to Jesus. When we are in the cycle of sin, in the cycle of deception, in the cycle of the antagonistic, adversarial, accusatory nature of Satan, the law, and our heart, we look to God who provides the answer. It is his son, Jesus Christ, who rescues us. God, our Father, our protector, our creator, our provider, our saving grace, shows us Jesus as the answer every single time. We will not appear before him at judgment and find God saying, well, what about this and what about that and what would you do about this? And even in the most grace-filled interpretation of that kind of picture, we see Jesus stand up and say, no, it's okay, Dad, they're with me. No, that's not what it will look like. God is not the accuser. God does not bring the charges against us. It is Satan who brings the charge against us when we stand before God in judgment. And it is God who looks to his son to say, you got him? Yeah, I got him. Okay. Then Satan gets to shut up. And we get to go in. Because Jesus said so. As he hung on the cross, and this changes everything, as he hung on the cross, he, he prayed for the people hanging next to him who were hurling insults at him. He prayed for the people who were responsible for crucifying him. He prayed for the family that he had that was there. And Jesus Christ died knowing you knowing every soul that had been or would be willingly hung on that cross with your name on his lips. Knowing that sometimes you're going to reject him. Sometimes you're going to make a decision and a choice that is the opposite direction that he is moving. Sometimes you're going to sin. He knew that. Did it anyway. Did it anyway. Now, take that one step further. Think about your enemies. Think about the people that you don't like. Think about the people that you don't get along with. Think about the people that annoy you, that you avoid. Think about that family member that's hurt you. The relationship that's broken. And think to yourself. Jesus died with their name on his lips, too. Does that change the way you see that person? Because it should. Does it change the way you see yourself? Satan is not only the accuser of your soul, he is the accuser of other people in your eyes. And the point of the gospel is that it not only changes where you're headed, but it changes how you see others and how you treat others. I love I love because Jesus loved me. Uh, Friday, the group that was here from Tennessee, we gathered uh, food, packed up sack lunches, probably about 100 of them, 
bunch of winter coats and, and gloves, and we went to Madison, to Rindall Park, where there are between 70 and 100 people living in a tent city, homeless encampment. And we pulled up, and we started walking through the encampment. Now, it's a pretty mixed bag. You're going to find some good, and you're going to find some ugly. Um, drugs, mental health challenges, and some people who just had a really bad a bad turn in their life. And as we talked to people and prayed with people and offered this uh, assistance to people, I got, I got to have a conversation with one guy that was really striking. And he said, you know, people drive by, and it's a pretty visible encampment. It's, it's on Washington, and, and so it's pretty busy. He said, people drive by, and they stare, and they take pictures, and they gawk like we're in a zoo. He said, people don't understand, you're one bad decision away from being here with me. Now that's the bad. And then the question came back, what made you guys want to do this? You came all the way up from Monroe, why, why do this? And I said, well, like you said, I'm one bad decision from being your neighbor. But that also means that because of what Jesus did for me when I didn't deserve it, that I need to do that for others. I love not because I'm a good person. I give not because I'm a good person. Not because I have some special quality. It's because Jesus lives inside me. And he didn't have to do what he did. God didn't have to do what he did. God, as my saving grace, expressed through his son changes how I treat others, changes how I see others, and I don't always live that out to perfection or even adequacy, but I must wake up every day with the drive to express the grace of God in how I live and treat other people. We are all one bad decision away from having a life that looks very different than it does right now. And we have to remember that. Satan, the accuser, is waiting to deceive and to turn us away. And God is pursuing us with his son, with that grace and that salvation to bring us home. God, as our saving grace, transforms us, changes us, and directs us home. For all the things he is, it all points us to Jesus. Starting next week, we're going to begin probably a little more lengthy series that we'll, we're not going to really think of as a series. But we're going to focus through the end of the year exclusively on the Gospels and exclusively on the stories of Christ, the accounts of Jesus. And we're going to look at some specific stories and what he did and how he interacted. And we are going to spend several weeks just celebrating Christ and the life of Christ and his ministry. And really focusing on the Son. We've, we've talked about the Father. Now we're going to give some time the rest of this calendar year to focus on the Son. Who he was and what he did. And making Jesus the center of all we do. Because that's the center of everything. That's who we are. If you are in need in any way, if we can help you in any way to pray for you, to encourage you, to help build you up. As we work together to try and, 
and be lights and we work together to try and demonstrate the love of God and his son Jesus, let's do that. If we can help you in any way, let us know as we stand together and Tim leads us in this song.